Welcome to The Great Podcast, a show where we take a look at the important men and women of history and decide, once and for all, if they're worth all the fuss. I'm Jordan. And I'm David. Thank you so much for joining us for Constantine Part 2. And Jordan, this is our 20th episode. Woo! Woo! Woo. Only took about two and a half years. Yeah. But here we are. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, it's going to be a good one. So let's get into it. Imagine, if you will, an army is camping out on the periphery of the city of Rome. Fires crackle, men joke or gamble or sit quietly, preparing themselves for the violence that will follow in the morning. They're confident, fresh off recent victory, but battle is battle and war is hell. The next morning, their leader, in his magnificent armor and long purple cloak, assembles them. He cries out that he has received a vision, a vision from the highest divinity, and it told him how they would win this day. He ordered them all to paint a pair of letters on their shields, Greek letters, Chi and Rho. This high deity, apparently, guaranteed victory with this symbol to aid them. The enemy army poured out of the fortifications, which was a surprise to the men who had expected to need to lay siege and assault the walls. Perhaps their enemies were affected by the divine as well, affected enough to behave foolishly. The battle was fierce, brutal, and horrific. Soon, the river flowed with bloated corpses, most of them the enemies. The men sat and admired their work, thankful to be alive, thankful for their wonderful leader, and perhaps thankful to the Christian God. And there we go. Let's get started with this story. So we ended last time with the death of Galerius and Diocletian in 311 CE, mm-hmm. which I inexplicably said 317 at the end of last episode. Wow. I know I really messed How up. I almost re-recorded it, but I'm very lazy. <laughs> so yeah, um, the empire was kind of a powder keg of mistrust, frustration, and resentment. Mm-hmm. Uh, Constantine sat in Gaul kind of a usurper who had gotten away with what he had been doing and been allowed to be in the Tetrarchy. Licinius, who we will meet properly soon, was the Augustus of the West. But Maxentius, son of Maximian, another usurper, held absolute authority in Italy and North Africa. So Licinius is missing a bunch of his land. Licinius and Maximinus Dia, who was the Caesar in the East and nephew of Galerius, hated each other. Due to this, the East and West split had become far more pronounced. This was just another great choice by Galerius. (laughs) Then Galerius did one of the only wise things he had done before his death, the Edict of Toleration, which we saw last time. That may have been in part to ease some of this overwhelming tension, since Dia in the East was real into persecuting Christians, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, everywhere else they weren't. So hopefully that will solve all the problems and there won't need to be any more violence or death. I don't think so. What do you mean? I don't think so. You know, opening, that, that's a really negative way of looking at it. story really seems like there's a little more violence and death. No, 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 no. Anyway, I can't help but think of uh, Marcus Aurelius and Commodus when I think of Diocletian and Galerius. The two examples are very different. I'm not trying to say they're the same, but they hold the same theme. A really great forward-thinking ruler who chooses someone as their successor who is deeply out of their depths when it comes to absolute rule. Because Commodus was a tyrant, but Galerius just wasn't good at yeah, his job. No, he, like, just, he wanted to make these certain things happen. He wanted to be a tyrant, but just bad at doing anything. So he like didn't have power to 
Well, he appointed people that were just going to fail. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like he just like he's like, yes, this is my great plan. This is my aspirations. Yep. Okay, cool. You got one. Step one, aspiration. Great. Step two, execution. Terrible. Execution Terrible not execution. on the plate. <laughs> yeah. So, well, okay. Now let's take a quick look at what these major players were doing leading up to Galerius's death, because I kind of jumped to that last time. So we'll briefly look at everyone. So we last saw Maxentius, who's in Italy. He had to send his armies off to North Africa to put down a revolt of his own, because if you're emperor, someone's going to try and usurp your throne. Mm -hmm. It's just how it goes. That took up 309 to 310 CE for the young usurping emperor. But the whole time he was ruling his little chunk of the empire, he was very busy at work. See, Maxentius, while young, was no fool. He recognized that his position as emperor in Italy and North Africa was contingent on the senators, praetorians, and armies remaining loyal to him personally. They had placed him in the purple, and they could strip it away just as fast as Maximian had stripped the cloak from his son's shoulders. You remember that? Mm -hmm. He's like, you're not emperor. <laughs> and then they're like, yeah, he is. With this in mind, Maxentius did what the people of Italy and Rome had been begging the emperors to do for generations now. Come home and rule from the capital. Maxentius, with little else to do, spent his time and wealth on building projects in Italy generally and Rome specifically. Finally, after so many years of all the money going to wars and the periphery of the empire, the wealth of Italy was being spent in Italy. Potter has a nice quote on this in his book that I've been following for all the Constantine stuff. Quote, Maxentius's building projects in the heart of Rome were extensive and designed to drive home a major point. While Diocletian, his colleagues and heirs might think that the center of power was wherever they happened to be, he had no doubt that Rome was the center of the world. He added to marvelous structures like the palace that overlooked the Circus Maximus and the Baths of Caracalla. A new bathhouse was built as well, and many other grand statues and monuments. Maxentius also rebuilt connections with the Christian church, which had obviously been badly damaged under the persecution. When that man in North Africa rose up and proclaimed himself emperor, he sought an alliance with Constantine, which was ignored, and Maxentius responded quickly, knowing that the provinces under the rebel held few regular troops. A small army was launched to retake the rebelling lands, and their leader was swiftly captured and strangled to death. Oh. Well done, Maxentius. By the end of 310 CE, we arrive at the end of the last episode. Maximian rose up and tried to uh, have himself proclaimed emperor. Uh, that was in Gaul. It had gone as most would have expected, and Maximian soon found himself dead. Yeah. Now, whether Maximian committed suicide or was explicitly executed by Constantine is unclear. But many in Gaul and neighboring Italy, where Maximian had ruled for two decades and recently helped save the people from Severus and Galerius, felt that Maximian's death was unnecessary and extreme. Maxentius the son, was no fan of his father's, obviously. Maximian had tried to overthrow him as well, but a man cannot simply stand by while another man kills his father. Once Galerius died the following year in 311, Maxentius had spent the previous year bolstering the defenses along northern Italy. He knew that sooner or later, the man tasked with bringing him to heel, Licinius, and his father's killer, Constantine, would bring the might of their empires crashing down on him. But now... Let's introduce Licinius properly, because I mentioned him last time and said we'll get to him. And this is that moment. Like the others, Licinius was born along the Danube in Upper Moesia. Like Severus II, Licinius was good friends with the future emperor Galerius. 
I could not confirm if Severus was a childhood friend, but it appears Licinius definitely was. They were bros. He would serve alongside Galerius during the Persian campaign in 298. That was the one that Constantine also served on. Um, and was so trusted and respected by Galerius that he was sent as an envoy to Italy when Maxentius first rose up. As we have seen, the talks with Maxentius had failed, so had Severus's siege of Rome. That meant Galerius had needed to act personally. And we saw that he set out with his armies at his back, leaving his lifelong friend Licinius to be acting head of government in the east. So that's high praise and a pretty clear sign that you might be next in charge. As we saw, Galerius asked Diocletian to hold a meeting with the three original tetrarchs who were still alive. There, it was decided who would be in the new tetrarchy and who would be out. Maximian, you're out again. Constantine, stop calling yourself Augustus. <laughs> you are a Caesar until told otherwise. And uh, who should be Augustus of the West? The man who just spent a year leading the East, of course, Licinius. I'm saying get him in. Yep, he's, he's an experienced leader now. Licinius found himself catapulted to the top of the org chart. Now Galerius was the number one and Licinius was the number two. But would this be another Severus situation? Because Galerius had sent his last friend into the stratosphere and he had burned up very quickly. Licinius's first directive as Augustus was retake Italy. It appears he attempted this sometime between 309 and 310, taking a small portion of the outer territory of the Italian diocese. It is speculated that Maxentius later returned and reclaimed these lands. Hmm. Licinius then had to divert his attention to handle some Sarmatians because barbarians are always a problem. Uh, and this allowed Maxentius to continue ruling his little section of the empire. And that's the position Licinius found himself in when Galerius began his slow and ponderous death. Doing well, but not in a particularly strong position. And since we're doing this little roundup, let's check in on Maximinus Dia, who was probably called Maximinus Daza, as we said last time, um, and who was ruling in the east as Galerius' Caesar. There's not much to say about what was going on in Egypt while Dia was in charge, uh, except that he is often considered the last man to be called Pharaoh by the oh. locals, which is very interesting. Mm -hmm. He was also known to have been a big proponent of the persecution, as I mentioned, and his provinces saw the strictest enforcement of those edicts. When Licinius was named Augustus of the West, Galerius sent word to Dia, and immediately two issues arose. See, Constantine, like I said, was styling himself emperor mm -hmm, of his lands, mm -hmm. uh, self-claiming the higher rank title since he felt he should have followed Severus because he was Severus's Caesar. Dia was technically third on the imperial org chart, a step above Constantine. So logically, if Constantine was Augustus, Dia should be as well. And Absolutely. how the hell is Licinius a higher rank than Dia? He wasn't even a Caesar. Should probably require to kill him now, huh? We'll get to that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and remember, Dia hates Licinius right, personally. Right, right. So he's real upset that he cut the line. So Galerius just goes, okay, how about this? We're going to kind of rework this whole thing. The compromise was that Constantine, as we said, is not going to be Augustus anymore. But... We're not going to make you guys Caesar anymore because that seems to not be good enough for you. So you're going to be this new rank called the Sons of the Augusti, which is oh. just hilarious because it's just Caesar. Yeah. It's that's just, all that's it, it is. That's it. Just a different way of saying it. Right. Literally nothing different. Yeah. Well, Dia acquiesced to this compromise, probably <laughs> feeling that he still wasn't in a strong enough position to keep openly defying his Augustus. 
But Galerius's nephew was ambitious, and he knew that he would be Augustus of the East when his uncle died. And even though Lactantius's tale of Galerius's gruesome death is probably exaggerated, it's clear that everyone knew the emperor was dying for a while, so everyone started to prepare. Dia fought a war against the Sassanid Empire in 310, and that was probably a pretty minor affair, and it was probably just a means to earn the soldiers' trust and respect in case, you know, Galerius died and, I don't know, like civil war broke out or something. Ah. Timothy Barnes says that in 310, while Galerius was in the early stages of that horribly drawn-out death, the armies under Dia saluted him as emperor, and he began to openly style himself as such. In his waning year on this earth, Galerius seems to have given up. He did little governing. Dio was grudgingly accepted as another Augustus in the Imperial College, and Maxentius was left to rule his little slice without further interference, even from Licinius. Then Galerius did die in 311 CE, leaving Licinius as Augustus of the West and Dia Augustus of the East. Problem, however... Due to Maxentius holding two of the best provinces in the West, Italy and North Africa, Licinius had been given several of Galerius's provinces, okay? Mm -hmm. So these are provinces that should be the land of the Eastern Augustus. But Licinius needed something, so they gave him some Eastern provinces. These are Thrace, Illyricum, and Pannonia. But now those should rightly go to Dia. Yep. Dia wasted no time in marching his troops, who were fresh from their Sassanid campaign, straight into Asia Minor. These are mine. These, yeah. these, are, these are actually mine now. Yeah, I live here. Yep. This is mm-hmm. my territory. My area. And he was on a direct collision course with Licinius's territories that he felt were his. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, no fighting took place as Dia marched. Uh, many probably did not realize this force was headed for a civil war. Just, oh, the, the Augustus is marching some troops. Sure. Okay, yeah. yeah. And remember that Licinius and Dia, as I said, do not like each other. Um, despite this, the two arranged a meeting, which took place on a large boat because neither man wanted to be <laughs> in the other's territory. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I can't, very petty <laughs> shit yeah, here. Yeah. And they were able to come to an agreement. Dia was getting a ton of the eastern provinces from Galerius anyway, pretty much the entirety of the east. So it was decided that the east-west dividing line would just move to include Licinius's chunk, and we'll be fine. No, like we're fine. We don't need to fight. It's okay. And I'm sure this peace is gonna last a really Forever. long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They just they made amends right there. Yep. They're best friends now. Yep. And to finish off Dia's peace here, once he set up in his newly acquired lands, he expanded his religious policies, mm. i.e., the persecution yeah. continued. Uh-huh. No matter what Galerius had proclaimed on his deathbed, the Bishop of Alexandria was taken suddenly and executed. Uh, it is claimed that Constantine and perhaps Licinius objected to this, but uh, that may also just be propaganda. I mean, I would think they would object to it, Again, at least privately. Yeah. Like be, be against it morally, but maybe, maybe not publicly. But. For sure. Okay. But now, at long last, let's focus on the focus of this episode Constantine. My boy. As always, he's sitting on the periphery of events, not entangling himself or causing anyone to take action against him. It appears that Constantine did the wise thing in his early years as Caesar and solidified his position in the lands loyal to him, which is Britain and Gaul, and I think Spain eventually. It seems he made trips to Britain twice between 307 and 310, and he traveled around Gaul, showing what a good and caring ruler he was to his subjects. 
He also fought on their behalf, fending off Frankish invasion and campaigning across the Rhine regularly. Now, I started reading another book called Constantine and Eusebius for this episode, and Eusebius is the Christian writer, and I think Bishop, either that or that was Lactantius, who's around Constantine and wrote a history on him. And this book goes into a bit more detail about Maximian, because I was a little bit flippant last time and i said oh he just walked into arles one day and said hey guys i'm emperor now but there's a there's a little bit more to the story so barnes says that maximian was entrusted with part of constantine's army because constantine needed to go fight up north and he feared maxentius was going to march north out of italy so hey maximian go take some troops and hold the passes it was with this contingent of troops that maximian marched into arles and declared himself emperor And he did it in a rather funny way. He walked in and said, ah, unfortunate guys, Constantine died. (laughs) Yeah. Man, he's dead. Yeah. So I guess guess I'm emperor now. Um, (laughs) He then confiscated all the public wealth he could find in his immediate vicinity. And just like bailed or what? No, offered it to the troops. Oh, okay. And uh, he's like, hey, guys, uh, take this money and forsake Constantine, who's definitely dead. He's dead for for sure, sure, for sure. But, like, you know, if you just betray him, yeah, yeah, the yeah. dead guy. No, 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 it's fine. Why don't you just come with me? Um, but the, the men were just confused. <laughs> yeah. And then angry because they were like, we're marching huh? with you as our general under orders from our emperor. Uh huh. Uh huh. We're not going to betray him for gold. Uh, Honestly, so, strange. Fair. Honestly. <laughs> fair. That is a good point. That is not always how this yeah. turns out. <laughs> yeah. But I think they also were like, Maximian, stop, yeah, dude. Yeah, that's fair. Too many times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Maximian's revolt failed, and the old three-time emperor was either executed or uh, told to execute himself. Um, probably took his own life. This was a scary situation for Constantine, though, who was doing all he could to secure his political position in his territories. And let's not forget that Constantine's father had married Maximian's stepdaughter or daughter, and they had several children, all of whom were potential replacements for Constantine should his support ever wane. And now he had just killed his wife's father. Because he's also married to Maximian's right. daughter. Yeah, these family lines are just messy. Watch out if you join Constantine's family. I'm <laughs> just going to let you know now. Um, so while we can agree that Maximian probably couldn't have been allowed to live at that no. point, um, many were not pleased, like I said. And it was a potentially dangerous situation, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but he was able to twist it pretty well. And he did that using his propaganda machine. I mentioned back in Aurelian's episode that Constantine would go on to claim a familial lineage with Claudius II, the man who helped murder Gallienus, mm-hmm. then found, then fought some Goths and died of plague. Real short reign. We glossed over it because it was fairly inconsequential compared to Aurelian's. But Claudius was remembered very fondly. He's kind of the good guy in that history, particularly for the senators. Um, and he had removed Gallienus, and nobody liked Gallienus in the aristocracy. And then he fought those Goths. What a great guy. So around July of 310, shortly after Maximian's death, Constantine heard a speech which recounted Maximian's revolt, but also casually put in there that Constantine shared blood with Claudius II. Just threw it in. Yeah. By the way. And then the speech just big ups Claudius and how awesome (laughs) he was. 
funnily enough, it never specifies how they're related. Who needs to, honestly? Yeah, you don't need that kind of thing. There's no, no, no DNA no. testing. Details, who needs them? So it kind of goes down as grandfather or great uncle. Okay. However you want to go with it. This means Constantine was the third emperor of his royal line, with a nice big gap between Claudius and Constantius. The speech then goes on to big up Constantius and point mm. out that while men who climb the ranks of the military and find themselves as emperor should be commended for their efforts, this is big upping Constantius's work and also big upping Licinius. Mm -hmm. uh, it's another thing altogether to have been an appointed heir, firstborn son, standing at the head of his armies and his people. Let's go, Constantine. You're like, oh, me? No. no I mean, no. Hmm. You know, stop it. Keep going. Stop <laughs> it. <laughs> it then leads very heavily into the Roman pantheon and the way the average Roman may believe things to have happened. Barnes says it nicely, so I'll quote him here. Quote, when the heavenly temples opened to receive the dying emperor Constantius, Jupiter welcomed him and asked whom he desired to name as his successor. The gods ratified Constantius's choice of Constantine by unanimous verdict. Now Constantine had divine mandate from the gods, along with his lineage of not one but two previous emperors. The speech goes on by telling how Constantine at first refused the power of the purple, like grudgingly accepted. I mean, it's great. It's a great burden, of course, of course. I, but I will do it for you. Naturally. Right. Constantine, obviously, then went and consulted with the Augusti and asked permission to claim his father's vacant spot, which they happily agreed to. And we know that's complete bullshit because he <laughs> yeah. just took it and then said, it's mine, though, right? Yeah, no, no, no. It's supposed to be mine. I'm here. Yeah, yeah. This is right. This is correct. And I'm glad you guys see it my way. No, that guy said the God said it was right. So uh, Jupiter. Good to go. Praised me. All right. Yeah. yeah. No, you told me. No. The, the orator of this speech then praises the other emperors, of course, uh, such as I mentioned with praising Licinius's climb to the top. He also praised Diocletian, which Barnes points out is strange because it is believed that Constantine, not a fan of Diocletian, did not like how he ruled and wanted to change things. But... If you weren't confident in the gods' favor of Constantine, the speech tells a tale about Constantine's recent march towards Massilia. And that's where Maximian had holed up right before Constantine got him. On that march, um, the story says, Constantine visited a temple of Apollo. And there he saw the god himself, oh. along with Victoria, the deified personification of victory. She gave him four laurel crowns each a representation of 30 years of success, meaning he would have a very long life. No. No? No. no. That math. <laughs> well, so uh, I might be making this up, but doesn't the Bible say a human can only live for 120 years? Uh, there's something, something like... in there after the point, like after man's fall. Okay. Yeah, something like that. Because I, I just wondered if there I was a, remember a what link. remember the actual number Because four is, times but... 30. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so there might be something there. Anyway, uh, so Constantine is seeing literal embodiments of gods, according mm -hmm, to this story. Mm -hmm. And they're telling him, you've got it's our favor, you. bro. You're, You're the, the one. one. You're him. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and so remember that tale as we move forward. Mm -hmm. Now, prior to this, Constantine had represented his chief deity as Mars, god of war. But after Maximian's revolt, he switched to Sol Invictus, who was considered somewhat uh, Apollo-ish, almost the same thing. It's kind of weird. Their gods have different mm -hmm. names and 
yeah, anyway. So we can see here that he's still very much in the Pantheon, and that's important. Now, to sum all that up, following Galerius' death in 311, Dia mobilized his troops and made a show of force against Licinius, and then they figured it out and negotiated without bloodshed. Maxentius was done putting down his revolt in Africa and was securing the passes into northern Italy on the assumption that Constantine and or Licinius would be invading. Constantine was in a strong position with loyal troops and administration at his back. He had also recently damned the memory of Maximian. Remember, they went into Diocletian's palace and started smashing the busts of mm -hmm, Maximian. Mm -hmm. And that probably salted the wounds for Maxentius that much more. Now, who do you think is in the worst position right now? Hmm. Oh man, there's there's too many names. Uh uh um which one which one's the one in the west? Licinius. So the guy in the east. Dia. Yes. Okay. He's in the worst position. I would say he's in the best. You think so? He's got the most land. Oh, okay, even though yeah. he lost the little He just lost provinces. parts of like what you think of like Greece and Macedonia, but he's got oh, okay. everything else to well, the then east. Probably Licinius. Licinius, yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's surrounded. Barbarians north northeast, sure. Dia east southeast, Maxentius southwest, Constantine rounding out the <laughs> compass. The Augustus of the West was by no means weak. He did have some powerful territories, and he did technically hold the most prestigious title in the empire, kind of. But still, everyone knew that this period of calm just was not going to last. So, negotiations began. We don't know if it was Licinius who reached out or if it was Constantine. But in late 311 or early 312, the two soon came to an agreement. We're not going to fight one another, and maybe we'll help defend each other if the need ever arises. The deal was sealed with marriage, Licinius marrying Constantine's half-sister. But that's going to have to wait for just a moment. In this alliance, though, we can clearly see that the Tetrarchy is not a single government with four guys at the top as it had been. Mm -hmm. Instead, the empire was essentially split just as it had been when Aurelian came to power. The difference from that time to now is that three of the four people were still kind of pretending they were on the same side. I mean, think about it. Does it make sense for two members of the same government to form a diplomatic alliance? No, because it's assumed. Right. That's what foreign powers do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Dia felt the same way. It's like, hmm. That's, uh, that agreement... It was an affront to his authority as an Augustus, mm -hmm. and not to mention it was obviously a defensive alliance <laughs> against him. So Dia did some backroom dealing of his own. Now, what do you think Maxentius, usurper in Italy, wants most of all? I don't know. The general sense is always just power, but I don't know. I don't know what he wants. Legitimacy. Oh, he, he wants, wants to be. To, he wants people to acknowledge him. I want to be in the tetrarchy. <laughs> no, I'm in power. I swear. I've been ruling here for so long. Just let me be. So, I mean, the dude has a point. He's been ruling two very wealthy, large chunks of the empire for about six years by 312, and that's when Dia's envoys arrived. And it was an easy sell for Maxentius to agree to a military alliance with Dia on the condition that he be officially recognized as an emperor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, like the Tetrarchy, Diocletian at this point was breathing his last at the end of 311. The lines were now drawn, the system was broken, and the deciding wars needed fighting. Now someone simply needed to make the first move. Who do you think is going to strike first? We got Maxentius, Constantine, Licinius, or Dia? 
Well, I know. I'm pretty sure Constantine uh, eventually gets to gets to Rome. But does he go first? Does he strike first? No, the one that wants legitimacy strikes first. Maximius? Maxentius. Maxentius. All right. Really trying to make a name. It's like, sure. no, 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 I'm legitimate. Let I'm me show the you. one. Yeah, let me show you. Got it. Okay. Well, Maximinus uh, Dia appears to have gone off on campaign in Mesopotamia shortly after all these mm. alliances were settled. He's got to go fight the Sassanids again. Maxentius, meanwhile, felt certain that Licinius planned to strike from the northeast. Mm. And so he stationed the bulk of his forces along that section of the Alps. This was a sensible move, considering Licinius was making a show of force with his troops in northeast Italy, though it appears to have not been a full-on attack. And that only leaves our boy, Constantine, the one who has made a few very swift, very decisive plays to get where he was, but has otherwise just kind of sat back and let the squabbling take place. Well, now he had to roll the dice. See, Constantine could not afford to allow Licinius to conquer Italy. Both of them were far too ambitious, and to leave such spoils to another man who might someday turn on him and claim the purple for himself, you know, since that's what Constantine planned to do, uh, would be unacceptable. And with Licinius holding down a large portion of Maxentius's troops, Constantine saw his opening. Now, what happens when the emperor along the Rhine leaves the Rhine region unattended? Well, gosh dang barbarians just come pouring in. Right. Now, Constantine is smart. <laughs> Instead of taking all his troops south and giving himself a significant numeric advantage, Constantine did the wise thing, and probably the only thing he could do since his men might not have agreed to leave, and he only brought about a quarter of his forces Ooh. into Italy. According to Barnes, this force would have been somewhere in the ballpark of 40,000 men. This force would be much smaller than what Maxentius could muster, but they had the advantage of learning from what Galerius had learned in his failed attempt with 70,000 men years earlier. Supply lines could not support more than 40,000 reliably. Mm -hmm. And I read somewhere in my research that that seems to be a trend in ancient warfare. 40,000 seems to be the max before attrition becomes a really big problem. Interesting. It just, yeah, the logistics of it just doesn't seem to work until we have modern farming and stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Still, this was a bold strategy. Constantine knew Severus and Galerius had failed, and the usurper in Africa had been swiftly dealt with. So Maxentius, while he didn't have his father as his top general anymore, seemed to have been doing pretty darn well. In early 312, once the passes through the mountains were not completely full of snow, Constantine crossed the Alps into northwestern Italy to put Maxentius down once and for all. I also saw in some places that Maxentius declared war on Constantine first, so you would have been right. Um, but that doesn't make sense to me since his main ally was off in the east fighting a different mm -hmm, war. Mm -hmm. He just kind of put himself in a really bad spot. Anyway, the first town Constantine encountered was Segusio, uh, modern Susa and Piedmont, on the northwestern corner of Italy. It, as I said, Maxentius had been busy fortifying all the northern cities in the previous years, and Segusio was a perfect example. The garrison in the city closed its gates and prepared for a siege. But ain't nobody got time for that. Constantine needed to act quickly. Bringing only 40,000 troops meant he was highly mobile, but significantly outmanned should Maxentius' forces be able to pin him down. So he had to take this city very fast. Scaling ladders were prepared. The men readied themselves. Fire was set to the great gates. 
The garrison was no match for the experienced and hardened troops from the Rhine, and the city was swiftly taken. Constantine did the smart thing, like Aurelian during his Palmyrene campaign, and ordered his men not to loot. They were here to liberate and return Italy to the imperial fold, not to conquer it. The army mobilized again, heading east into the Italian plains on a collision course with modern Turin, their eyes ultimately set on Mediolanum, or Milan. The plan was to take a couple major cities, swiftly route some of Maxentius. I spelled, I combined Maximian and Maxentius. <laughs> so it's Maxentian. Oh, yeah, pretty I good. Like it. Yeah, swiftly route some of Maxentius's forces and scare the rest into capitulation. But on their way to Turin, the army found themselves face to face with some troops that we have seen stationed in northwest Italy since the days of Gallienus the massive cavalry detachment. Mm. They had been stationed in Milan so that he could have an immediate task force mm -hmm, whenever he needed mm -hmm. one. This heavily armored force lined up against Constantine in a large wedge formation, intent on simply smashing the infantry as they stood helpless on the open plains. But let's not forget that along with his diplomatic and administrative skills, Constantine was by this time a battle-hardened, experienced general he would not be trampled into the dustbin of history. He had his men array themselves in a very long line, very thin at the center. As expected, the heavy cavalry rushed this weak point, pushing through and feeling that they were moments from routing the fools who dared invade their lands. But then the infantry began to close in on the sides very slowly. Meanwhile, Constantine's much lighter cavalry was running around the flanks at full speed, outmaneuvering the lethargic cataphracts in their heavy armor. And just like that, Constantine had encircled his foe. The light cavalry was armed with clubs that had heavy iron tips at the end, and these were great for knocking slow, heavy horsemen off their mounts. Potter has a really good quote about the quality of the men fighting in this battle. Quote, In a battle between two technologically equivalent armies, as would have been the Battle of Turin, victory went to the side with the better soldiers. As these men moved into battle, wielding their spears and long swords, experience mattered. An enormous advantage was held by men who had stood their ground when a comrade had gone down with a Frankish axe in his skull, who knew that they could rely on their neighbors as they fought the brutal one-on-one -on -one battle to their front that would determine their fate. And soon, it was a rout, and Constantine sent his infantry forward to kill all those who could not escape. The carnage was great. Those who managed to slip away hoped to find refuge within the city of Turin, but they had no such luck. The city could see the writing on the walls and sided with Constantine. <laughs> Rumor has it that the people stood on the walls and cheered as Constantine's forces pushed the poor bastards into a corner and slaughtered them to a man. Constantine entered the city to rejoicing from the people. Word of his military prowess and kind treatment of the civilian population quickly spread across northern Italy and cities sent envoys to congratulate him. In short order, Constantine marched to Milan, where the doors were flung open and he was welcomed with open arms. Some might question if this excitement was feigned in the hopes that Constantine would, you know, not murder them all. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. this seems unlikely. They were probably pretty happy. Remember, Milan had been the official seat of the Western government for generations by this time. And only when Maxentius had moved everything back to Rome did they lose that authority. This was a blow to the prestige and power of Milan, so Constantine coming in to restore things to, quote, the way they ought to be, would have been met with excitement. Plus, if Constantine won quickly, there would be no need for further fighting. But, of course, there would be more fighting. 
Maxentius had placed his best general and Praetorian prefect, Ruricus Pompeianus, in charge of the city of Verona, the last holdout in northern Italy. Constantine laid siege, expecting to have to starve out the well-fortified position, but to his surprise, Pompeianus chose to sally forth and fight Constantine's forces in the field. A short battle ensued, with Constantine coming out on top and forcing the attackers back behind their walls. Pompeianus, however, managed to slip the noose as Constantine's legions re-encircled the city. He moved about the area, gathering the forces he had stationed around Venetia and marched, back, marched them back towards Verona, where he planned to pin the emperor with his army on one side and the city army on the other. Rather than settle in to defend on two fronts, Constantine made another decisive move and launched his own attack. He left a chunk of his forces to hold down the garrison in the city, while he personally led the rest of his men in a charge against Pompeianus. These details come from Constantine and the Christian Empire by Charles of Dahl, and he says that Constantine's fearlessness inspired his men, men to win the day. It did not take long for Pompeianus to be cut down in the field, resulting in his remaining forces losing heart and routing entirely. The garrison was deflated as well, unwilling to endure a siege for a lost cause, and they soon surrendered the city. With that, Constantine controlled northern Italy, meaning the door was open for him to do the thing, mm -hmm. march on Rome. That's right. Maxentius was obviously very nervous at this point. He had begun this war with a comfortable numbers advantage and was acting in his home territory. Now, however, the numbers were much closer to even, as Constantine had managed to quickly isolate the chunks of the Italian forces and defeat them individually. Home territory was also a bit shaky for Maxentius now. Sure, he was loved in Rome, but all of the north was now firmly in Constantine's control, and it is speculated that many powerful families were already sending personal envoys to negotiate a swapping of sides. This meant two things for Maxentius. He couldn't really sit back and wait because he would probably lose more men and important people every day as mm -hmm, Constantine mm -hmm. approached. And he could not rely on the Aurelian walls of Rome because the populace was of unknown loyalty. And sieges make loyalty a very hot commodity. Mm -hmm. That meant Maxentius had only one option as Constantine marched his legions south. Go out and fight him. Defeating Constantine in the field was really the only way of maintaining power at this point. Good luck. Yeah. Chances seem slim. It appears that he knew this, too. Uh, in 2006, archaeologists uncovered several boxes with imperial symbols and items, which are believed to be Maxentius's belongings. The theory is that he stowed them away in these boxes under a temple on the Palatine Hill in Rome uh, as he marched his troops away. He did not expect to return and did not want his treasures lost. Just because I find this interesting, the boxes had some lances, javelins for hunting, Glass and Chalcedony, Chalcedony, C H A L C E D O N Y, spears. Yeah, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. I typed it. Don't know what the word is. Mm -hmm. A scepter and a few other things. Anyway, uh, it appears Constantine later left them there, so didn't care that much. <laughs> like, eh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what will follow here is known as the Battle of the Milvian Bridge which is just a good name for a battle. Sure. Most battles are just like battle of insert nearby town or city mm -hmm, followed by mm -hmm, a year mm -hmm. because every city has multiple battles. Anyway, this battle would be the final showdown. But we need to rewind for just a moment because this battle would not just be between Constantine and Maxentius because a third player decided to throw his lot into the fray. None other than Jesus himself. What? 
Remember how I mentioned what? that Constantine <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> claims to have had a divine encounter okay, sure. to take on yeah. his way to take out Maximian? That was with Apollo and Victoria. Well, surprise, surprise. Now it's the Christian God sending Jesus, who may or may not be God or God's son, but we'll kill each other about that later, to directly right, inspire right. Constantine before his glorious victory and reclamation of Rome. Hmm. Let me stress before I begin that Eusebius, who does all the writing on Constantine, does not mention the following vision in his original records of this battle, but later goes into detail on it in his life of Constantine, and he claims Constantine told him this personally. So hmm. the tale <laughs> roughly goes like this. Constantine was on the march to Rome, and Lactantius says, quote, he was directed in a dream to cause the heavenly sign to be delineated on the shields of his soldiers and so proceed to battle. That's it. That's what Lactantius says. It then shows the sign that he was supposed to make, which is, imagine if you will, a large X and through the center of that X vertically is a long vertical line. Mm. So think of like an asterisk star, mm -hmm. but with one of the lines extra long. Mm -hmm. And then at the top of that long line is the top of a P. So an X with yeah. a really long P through it. You may have seen this mm -hmm. symbol. I've seen it before. Yeah. This is known as the Chi Rho because Chi and Rho are the, the symbols. The symbols. And they're supposed to represent Jesus. Side tangent, I found a copy of uh, this work of Lactantius that was published in the 1700s. Mm. And all the letters look exactly the same as modern type, except the S's, which look exactly like a lowercase F. And it hurt my brain the that's, whole time. That's rough. Confentinin was odd because the S was an F. Anyway, you're just reading it wrong. So that was correct. Yes. <laughs> anyway, Eusebius again does not mention a vision, but naturally asserts that the Christian God helped Constantine mm -hmm, win, mm -hmm. since you know Eusebius is a Christian writer. His later work claims that the army marched to Rome, or as the army marched to Rome, Constantine looked up at the sun like an idiot and saw above it the cross made of light. This cross was accompanied by a few Greek words, which I will not attempt to say. The Latin version is translated to in hoc signo vinces, which in English is roughly in this sign you shall conquer. This version is clearly distinct from Lactantius, where the instructions are clear. Paint the symbol on your shields of your men and go fight. Uh, the version in Eusebius, again, which is supposed to be Constantine's personal account, is really vague. And it just says the sign was mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm, something. Mm -hmm. This is almost certainly not true. And Eusebius says that Jesus came to him the, that night and told him what to do and everything. But Constantine would go on to adopt this symbol for his legions, and it begins to appear on coins around 317, but not 312 at the Battle of the Milvian sure. Bridge. So it's all kind of mm -hmm. propaganda-y, wishy-washy. This is where researching Constantine becomes very difficult. Potter has a really good quote that sums this up. Quote, Although the Battle of the Milvian Bridge is often seen nowadays as the moment at which Constantine became a Christian as the result of having seen the vision of a cross in the sky and as a victory of faith over tyranny, none of these perspectives has much to do with what actually happened. So now let's take a look at the historical Battle of the Milvian Bridge. Constantine arrived on the outskirts of Rome expecting to lay siege. After all, Maxentius had successfully hunkered down behind his walls when Severus and Galerius had marched into Italy. Mm -hmm. But instead, Maxentius opted to leave the Aurelian walls and meet Constantine in the field. 
It is said that Maxentius had consulted the Sibylline books, which are those ancient books that have prophecy about Rome. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to look at them when Rome's in imminent danger. And apparently these are a newer version, which is interesting. Like, they're not the original ancient hmm. ones. I don't know. But this battle was going to take place on October 28th. And Maxentius saw in the books that on October 28th, an enemy of the Romans would perish. Which is not vague. At all. In the Especially slightest. because Rome definitely only has one enemy at a time. Right. Especially not even within Rome. Correct. <laughs> Lactantius and Eusebius chalk his decision uh, to leave the walls to divine intervention by the Christian God, obviously. Mm-hmm, he, mm-hmm. God made him a fool, so sure, he came out to sure, fight. Sure, sure. The men under Maxentius likely knew this fight was a lost cause, which is never what you want your men thinking as they prepare for battle. But it was not hard to see that Constantine was the better commander, and he had better trained, more experienced men who were running high off recent victory. Mm-hmm. Still, they lined up as instructed. And details are sketchy and mixed up, of course, but what we get is that Max- Maxentius crossed the Tiber River on or near the Milvian Bridge, probably using a pontoon bridge, since the actual bridge was probably destroyed intentionally to slow the siege down before it was decided to change plans and go out and fight. Now, Jordan, put yourself in these shoes. You're a military commander with decent troops Mm -hmm, who are not mm -hmm. the highest on morale. You are marching out against a better commander with experienced Mm. troops. You have just crossed the river and are lining up against your opponent, Mm -hmm. the river at your back. Mm -hmm. How do you line up your troops? Oh, man. Like, that's the only option. That's it. That's where you're starting. You don't have any time to, like... You have time, but you planned to go out and cross the river and line up your troops. Well, hopefully... If you had the advantage of more time, you would set up potentially a smaller group to draw them in so you could surround them on the sides right. and then push them towards the river. So like maneuverability would be key. and Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, Maxentius appears to have lined his men up really close to the river. He was just like, no, let's stand on the shore. Yes. <laughs> the thought being they can't retreat if there's nowhere to go. Oh, so he's like, no, if I box my own men in, they're going to fight for their lives, and that's the only way we can win. Correct. That is... That's just, he just gave up. He just gave that, up. No, no, no. It's a bold he, strategy, he, Cotton. Let's see if it, it pays off. It is a bold strategy. <laughs> so, Constantine opened with a cavalry attack, swiftly <laughs> removing Maxentius' own horse from the field. Then the infantry pushed forward. The fighting was very fierce, and the Maxentian forces resisted well. But whenever they had to maneuver, they had no space. See, you may not want your troops to retreat, but they also need room to reform. Give a little ground, take a little ground, you know? Hard to do that with Rushing River right behind you. Realizing the futility of this position, Maxentius called a retreat to the walls. They could could hold out from there, he hoped. How? Well, that was going to be my question. (laughs) How do the men get back to the walls, Jordan? What do you... How do you... What... (laughs) Well, so swim, swim for it. Oh, some will try. <laughs> uh, I know. Yeah, they. Uh, so they need to cross the river on the pontoon bridge. Oh my god! Now it's one thing to send men across in nice orderly ranks for battle. It's another thing entirely to have thousands of men panicking, just chaos, and rushing across a hastily assembled floating piece of wood. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now many men were cut down as they attempted to reach the bridgehead, but still many more managed to get across. Maxentius did his best to keep things contained and as organized as possible. But, you know, the battlefield was pure chaos. They were at the risk of losing it all, and they needed to get back to the walls quickly. Wait. Oh, no. Did you hear that loud crack? 
And then it was followed by screams mm. and splashing. Well, the pontoon bridge had collapsed. That's unfortunate. Instantly, thousands of men found themselves either stranded and fighting for their lives or being swept away by the current and pulled down by their armor and gear. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not entirely clear what happened to Max Sentius from this point. He was either on the bridge when it collapsed and drowned, fell in the river and drowned, <laughs> or was knocked from his horse into the river and drowned. Oh, okay. Or tried swimming across the river and drowned. And drowned. So, so we know he drowned. We oh, we know, know he how. drowned. We just don't know how. We All know right. he drowned. Okay. <laughs> he was the son of an emperor who was a founding member of the Tetrarchy. Mm-hmm. He had been groomed since childhood to follow Maximian to the purple, but was overlooked. When he claimed his own, he had defended it vehemently and earned the love and respect of his people. There are stories about him being a depraved sexual deviant and all that, but, you know, most losers of civil wars have that. Um, But he had ruled for six years, and um, all he wanted was to be acknowledged as legitimate. His wish would not be fulfilled. No. No, no, no. Constantine rested his men that night and entered Rome the following day on October 29th, 312. The people went wild and mass celebrations were held. This jubilation was likely in part happiness that the war was over, and in part that they didn't need to withstand another siege. Yeah, I'm sieges sure the people suck. Just like, please, <laughs> just no. You... Yeah, come in. He's dead. Okay, cool. cool. Just like, can I go back to work, please? Now? Can we be back in the empire Thanks. now? Great. <laughs> Maxentius's body was scooped out of the river, and they chopped his head off. Mm. The head was carried around and shown off while the people drank and danced and made merry. And then it was shipped to North Africa so that they would get the message that this was over. Let's not keep fighting. Constantine would not stay long in Rome. However, he did not even make the customary sacrifice in the Temple of Jupiter, which was a deliberate play. Well, yeah, he's with the Christian God now, dude. Well, see, that's what the that's what the Christians will say, um, that oh. he had he had converted, mm-hmm, which isn't mm-hmm. true. Uh, the most likely reason he did that he like didn't do this was to avoid association with Diocletian whose chief mm. deity was Jupiter. Mm. Yeah, he's trying to really distance himself. Um, oh, that's my next line. By this time, Constantine was trying very hard to distance himself from the old Tetrarchic regime. He was the son of an emperor and grandson or great-nephew of another. That was all that mattered, and the Tetrarchy was just some oppressive old institution that had served its purpose and could be done with. Maxentius's administration was probably nervous about where they would stand under this new leadership, uh, most were fortunate to find Constantine doing the smart thing and keeping those who did their jobs well in mm-hmm, their positions. Mm-hmm. Zosimus, who wrote 300 years later, claims that many of Maxentius's friends were executed. And that's probably true, but it doesn't appear that most of those friends were in high places. Along with this, Constantine restored properties which had been confiscated during the persecution to their original Christian owners. Maxentius had ended the persecution in his lands, but he had not felt secure enough to give up that valuable property. Then Constantine did something momentous. Monumentous? I don't know. One of those. He disbanded the Praetorian Guards. Ooh. What a move. Yeah. Well, honestly, this portion of the story, it was just kind of like, it happened. There wasn't much else to be said about it, so I don't have a ton of detail, but we'll, we'll take it with a grain of salt. The Praetorians had been the initial military force behind Maxentius mm-hmm. and, you know, kingmakers and stuff mm-hmm, for centuries. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Many of them had actually died at the Milvian Bridge, and there's a story of them making a crazy last stand along the edge of the river. So good on them, because they knew they weren't going to get a pardon. No. They were the bad guys now. 
Um, and just like that, the guards were disbanded. The units were shipped off to different areas of the standing military. And the Praetorian camp, built by Praetorian Prefect Sejanus under Tiberius Whoa, yeah. in 23 CE. This yeah. is episode three. A long time ago. They tore it down. <laughs> However, three of the four walls had been incorporated into the Aurelian walls. Mm. So they're still there to this day. Oh, that's cool. Which is tits. We're going to see yeah. them, Jordan. We're going to see them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyway, after establishing the administration of his new acquired, newly acquired territories, Constantine set off back to Milan, where he met with his co-emperor Licinius. The two came together to finally hash out that alliance and get that marriage settled. Mm -hmm. And they had a couple other important things that they needed to discuss. The two came together to discuss how the new order of things was going to work. As it stood, Constantine was the emperor of the West. Maximinus Dia was emperor of the East. And Licinius was emperor of the West, but kind of just had the middle Mm -hmm. bit. Mm -hmm. Not Mm -hmm. ideal for Licinius. (laughs) But it was all going to come to a head very soon. As Dia was unlikely to stand idly by while his rivals continued to grow in power. But now it was two on one. And so Dia had to play it safe. So maybe we'll hold off for a little bit. Licinius married Constantine's eldest half-sister, cementing the alliance and bringing the two men closer together. It appears that by this time, Constantine was beginning to see the power of, quote, the highest god. Uh, That's how they put it in those early days. The highest divinity, the highest god. His sister was a Christian already. And Constantine probably wink, wink, nudge, nudge to Licinius to see the benefit of at least accepting the Christian God. This meeting would help inspire an important event that we will cover in a moment. But right now, we need to actually look east. Wait, uh, is that Dia marching 70,000 troops west towards Licinius's lands? Oh. Oh, it sure is. Interesting. Interesting development. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) One month after the marriage in Milan, Licinius was marching his own legions east into Greece ready to stop the advance of his enemy. Constantine was caught up dealing with some Franks, so Licinius would be on his own. Diakos crossed the Bosphorus towards Byzantium, a place we will soon become familiar with, which held against his siege for 11 days before falling. Next came Heraclea, which also did not last long. But as Heraclea was falling, Licinius was getting into position only 18 miles away. The two emperors met, as they had done years earlier, to see if they could settle this diplomatically. How do you think that went? Not well. Not well at all. Unlike mm-hmm. last time, no agreement could be made. They would settle this one in blood. Mm-hmm. Now, Daya's 70,000 troops had endured some harsh conditions on their march and then lost more men during their sieges. Still, they outnumbered Licinius, who had somewhere around 30,000 men at his disposal. Of course, this battle would not fit the trend if an angel did not appear before Licinius the night before the fighting. The angel gave the emperor a prayer to recite, and he wrote it down, and the next morning, all his men had to repeat it three times. Oh. I won't read it, because it's your standard Christian fare of all power to you, you are superior, etc., etc. On April 30th, 313, the battle commenced. I could find no details on this battle, except that everyone says Licinius was outnumbered and managed to win a total victory. Dia's forces were crushed, and the emperor retreated at full speed to Nicomedia. This was about 160 miles away, Oof. and Dia reached it within 24 hours of the battle being oh, lost. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That's so Booking fast. It. Yeah. Booking it. <laughs> he may have lost, but he still had the wealth and might of the entire Eastern Empire at his disposal. 
and he intended to put it to work. So he gathered up his family and continued his flight east, with Licinius following, but Licinius was being cautious because he mm-hmm. didn't want to fall into a trap. When Licinius did march into Nicomedia, he ordered an edict posted in his rival's former hometown. This edict has gone down in history with the misnomer, the Edict of Milan, since its foundation originated during the meeting with Constantine and Licinius when they got together for the marriage. Mm. They discussed what should happen with the Christians. Now, this is the edict in part, quote, When we, Constantine Augustus and Licinius Augustus, met so happily at Milan and considered together all that concerned the interest and security of the state, we decided to grant the Christians and to everybody the free power to follow the religion of their choice, in order that all that is divine in the heavens may be favorable and propitious towards all who are placed under our authority. When you see that this has been granted to Christians by us, your worship will know that we also conceded to other religions the right of open and free observance of their worship for the sake of the peace of our times, that each one may have the free opportunity to worship as he pleases. This regulation is made that we may not seem to detract from any dignity of any religion. And boom, religious freedom for all, not just Christians. This edict is often misconstrued as the declaration that Christianity is the official religion of the empire. Mm. That's not true. That doesn't happen for a long time. Mm -hmm. But this edict also returned all the lands that had been compensated by the Christians, um, which was a huge thing um, and should end some of the internal strife caused by the persecution. But it most importantly was a big middle finger to Dia. Yeah. That's what it was for. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Now, despite Dia's instructions from Galerius, we saw that he continued the persecution tangentially. He did not officially order the horrible things done to Christians, but he obviously did not stop it. I said that the bishop of Alexandria had been executed. Mm -hmm. Seven women had been drowned in Ancyra. And when the local people recovered their bodies and one man was like, you know what, this is bullshit. He was burned to death publicly. Yeah, not good. But now Dia was on the run. Apparently even disguising himself as a slave at one point to not be captured by Licinius's men. He attempted to fortify the uh, Cilician Gates, which is a pass to the mountains um, in south-central Anatolia, but Licinius and his forces broke right through. It would appear that this war was going to stretch on, as Dia had so much land and resources to fall back on. But then, in August of 313, only two months after the Edict of Milan was issued in Nicomedia, Maximinus Dia died. Oh. It's not clear exactly what happened to him. Edward Gibbon says he died, quote, to despair, to poison, and to the divine justice. Oh, he died. He died. He died. (laughs) But Lactantius, in On the Deaths of the Persecutors, says this, quote, Being hard-pressed both by sea and land, he despaired of finding any place for refuge. And in the anguish and dismay of his mind, he sought death as the only remedy of those calamities that God had heaped on him. But first... He gorged himself with food and large draughts of wine, and then he swallowed poison. The force of the poison was repelled by his full stomach and could not immediately operate, but instead produced a grievous disease resembling the pestilence, and his life was prolonged only that his sufferings might be more severe. During a fit of frenzy, which lasted four days, he gathered handfuls of earth and greedily devoured it. Having undergone various and excruciating torments, he dashed his forehead against the wall and his eyes started out of their sockets. 
Lactantius says that in his blindness, he saw God and said, no, 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 everyone's guilty but me. Like, I'm innocent. <laughs> and then he died. <laughs> um, I'm guessing most of that's not true. Yeah. But yeah. He, it seems likely he may have committed suicide via poison to just get it over with. <laughs> oh, the Eastern lands quickly bowed down to Licinius because, like, we're just happy the war is over, man. Mm-hmm. Like, whatever. Uh, that just left couple final questions, a couple loose ends to tie up. Uh, first of all, what should be done with Daya's son and daughter, who are eight and seven, respectively? Just probably just kill them, I guess, you know? Well, Edward Gibbon has a really eloquent way of saying things, so I'm going to have him <laughs> quote. Their inoffensive age might have excited compassion, but the compassion of Licinius was a feeble resource, mm. nor did it restrain him from extinguishing the name and memory of his adversary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, there was another emperor's son out east that Licinius felt he needed to deal with as well. Severianus, son of Severus II. Okay. We didn't talk about him at all. Mm-mm. But you'll recall that Licinius and Severus never wore the purple at the same time. Licinius had been Severus's replacement mm-hmm. after Severus had been unalived. Galerius had then offered Severianus refuge after and, you know, mm-hmm. like my mm-hmm. friend's son, you can come live with me. But then Galerius died mm-hmm. and Severianus figured Licinius might Maybe. view him as a threat <laughs> because, you know, his father had had that title and now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he decided I'm going to go live with Daya in the east. He even served Rough. in the campaign to fight Licinius. Oof. So after Daya's death, Licinius did what Severianus had feared he would do mm-hmm. and had him executed. Mm-hmm. But wait. Oh, there's more. Rolling back the clock. Remember that Diocletian had married his daughter to Galerius. Mm -hmm. And she became known as Galeria Valeria, which is wonderful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What isn't wonderful is how horrible her life became (laughs) after her father and husband died. Really bad. Um, Remember that Diocletian and Galerius died within like eight months of each other. So all her protection went away very fast. Licinius, being Galerius's good friend, took Valeria and her mother, Diocletian's widow, into his protection. But Valeria must have had bad vibes from this, and she fled east, just as Severianus had done, to the open arms of Dia. Mm. While Galerius and Valeria had no children together, Galerius had a son from a concubine called Candidianus. The whole family had booked it, and it appears Candidianus, who was probably around adulthood, had been betrothed to Daya's unnamed daughter, the seven-year-old. One might expect the story to turn horrible once Licinius killed Daya, but it was actually Daya who made things horrible for poor Valeria. See, remarrying was pretty taboo in ancient Rome Mm -hmm, for women, mm -hmm. but Daya apparently really wanted to marry the widow Valeria, like badly. She rejected his advances and soon found herself at his mercy. Yeah. She was arrested held in Syria, and her vast wealth and properties were confiscated. Um, I might have the timeline messed up here, but some stories talk about Diocletian being alive and attempting to get Valeria released, but finding that he had no authority anymore and Dia just kind of gave him the finger. And that may, we said that uh, Diocletian might have committed suicide. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Speculation is that that might have been part of it. Mm. When Dia met his end, Valeria would find no safety in Licinius's court either. The new Eastern emperor ordered she and her mother be executed. Somehow, the two managed to flee 
and hide out for a year, but some jackasses in Thessalonica recognized and reported them. They were beheaded publicly Jesus. and then had their corpses tossed into the sea. Ugh. I've, yeah, <laughs> not good. When as, you're just getting married off to the wrong person. <laughs> for real. Um, as for Candidianus, son of Gallienus, or Galerius, excuse me, he was welcomed into Lysinius' court with honors and respect. I mean, for a little bit until Lysinius decided mm-hmm, to kill him as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a lot of wives and sons getting murdered and uh, foreshadowing. They will not be the last. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So boom, the war is over and Licinius took control of the entirety of the Eastern Empire. Now, it's been a while since we've had some stability within the Empire. The Tetrarchic Wars had been ongoing since about 307 and, end, and did not end until Odia's death at the end of 313. Now it was time to organize and settle the provinces. Constantine appears to have spent most of the years that followed fighting barbarians across the Rhine and possibly popping up to Britain again. All this time, Rome was undergoing massive construction projects. Mm-hmm. Maxentius, as we saw, had devoted most of his time and resources to building renovations in the Eternal City. Constantine con- continued this practice, even giving the Senate a good deal of authority in the management of some of these projects. Things Maxentius built were converted, to give Constantine more credit, and a giant arch was put up showing his campaign against his former rival. Now, this arch was probably begun by Maxentius and then converted for Constantine's oh. needs. It's the kind of big F you. Mm-hmm. And that arch is still there today, which is pretty cool. And another thing we're going to check out while we're in Rome. Um, something else that was a big middle finger to Maxentius was the Colossus statue of Constantine that he had built in the Basilica of Maxentius. This was a building Maxentius had begun early in his reign and which Constantine completed. But he went one step further and had a massive statue of himself built and placed at the head of the basilica. Mm, As one does. We still have several pieces of this statue, uh, including the head and a hand, both feet and a bicep and elbow. (laughs) Uh, The name Colossus of Constantine, super accurate. The head is two and a half meters tall. That's pretty big. It's over eight feet. The statue was seated and even in this position was over 40 feet tall. Crazy. Now, in my research, I got really excited because just this year, it's mm-hmm, only February mm-hmm. 2024, several groups had come together and made a one-to-one scale reconstruction oh. of the statue, um, and it's in a garden behind the Capitoline Museum. Oh, cool. So, another thing we get to see in Rome. Ah. All right. Anyway, with all that sorted, Constantine took a look around and thought, you know, I think I need a Caesar. I think we still, That's like, fair. they're still in mm-hmm, the Tetrarchy, mm-hmm. essentially, so we need to get that figured out he first looked at his own family and we saw last time that he had a son called crispus from either a concubine or a first wife Mm -hmm. and crispus would have been mm, 14 ish around 314 he was born approximately 300 ce not quite old enough for actual ruling yet so eh, maybe not him some more sons will be on the way soon as well but for now he needed to look for someone with a little more life experience He settled on a man called Bassianus, who was a senator and seemed to be a good fit. To seal the alliance, Constantine arranged for his half-sister Anastasia to marry Bassianus. Mm -hmm. Bassianus was likely chosen because his brother, Senecio, was in Licinius's inner circle. So just another way to like bring us closer together. So around 316 CE, some sources say 314, but we'll go with 316, Constantine sent word to Licinius like, 
hey, uh, I think this guy would be a really great Caesar. Just I'm going to probably give him Italy and North Africa to rule. What do you think? Except not really a what do you think, more of I'm doing this, like, but hey, you this know, is what I'm doing. Yeah. how do you feel about it? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, Constantine probably expected a simple, yeah, cool, go for it. Right, right, right. But that is not what happened oh. <laughs> at all. Um, this part was pretty confusing, I'll admit. This mm-hmm, is, mm-hmm. I mentioned it to you that I was like, I'm not sure what's oh, happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, it took me longer than I thought to kind of work out what may have happened. So well, I might be making some of this up. But this is how we're going to say it went down. Constantine sent word that he had appointed or wanted to appoint Bassianus as Caesar. And Licinius either said no or did not respond. But it would appear that a conspiracy was formed, whereby Senecio, who was the brother of Bassianus, Mm -hmm. was told by Licinius to contact his brother in Italy and have him rise up in revolt and kill Constantine in the process. How, how would you think that would work? Right. I don't. <laughs> yeah. It's like, didn't Constantine just conquer Italy? Yeah. You really? Yeah. Like it with open seems arms, like a strange like, plan. Yeah. Um, Eusebius claims that Constantine learned of this plot via a vision sent from God, of mm. course, mm. and swiftly mm. had Bassianus arrested and executed. Mm. So family members, as I said, do not last long right. in the Constantine tribe. Um, as you might expect, this conflict did not end here. Constantine then demanded Senecio be handed over for execution as well. Licinius refused. Not only that, he also ordered the statues of Constantine, which were along the Italian border where they mm-hmm. shared a border, mm-hmm. be destroyed. And now the gloves were off. Bear in mind that Constantine is an ambitious and aggressive man whose propaganda has come down to us far more than most other emperors. So that's why this story might seem a little odd. It's possible Constantine was truly the aggressor in this. Sure. We just don't know. But anyway, Constantine marched east into his brother-in-law's territory, ready to kill another family member Mm -hmm. if that's what it took. The two sides soon faced off on the plains of modern Croatia. As was his modus operandi, Constantine appears to have been outnumbered. Constantine fielded 20,000 while Licinius had about 35,000. As the two sides came together, skirmishing broke out, and the Battle of Sibylai was underway. It was an all-day affair, with missiles firing back and forth while infantry duked it out in long battle of attrition. The stalemate was broken late in the day when Constantine personally led a cavalry charge against Licinius's flank, breaking the Licinian forces. That night, Licinius and his remaining cavalry fled the field. Once back in Sirmium, the emperor of the east called upon a man known as Valens, who was the duke of the frontier in Dacia, which was the military leader of the territory. Remember, Diocletian had separated civic and Mm -hmm. military, so it's Mm -hmm. not governor anymore. You got your dukes and you got your governors. Um, Valens helped gather a new army to oppose Constantine's advance and for his efforts was named Augustus. Oh, Probably Augustus of the West, Mm -hmm. meaning he'd be replacing Constantine soon. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sources from this time call him Caesar, but it appears that he was actually declared Augustus. It's weird. Either way, Constantine infuriated. This this pissed him off to no end. Um, And that was exactly the point. The armies... uh, or the armies of Constantine marched east into Thrace, now with the new objective of removing Valens. The second battle of this war occurred at Mardia in Thrace and went about the same as the first. The fighting was tough on both sides, as they both had experienced veterans, but Constantine sent several thousand men on a long flank and nearly routed the enemy. 
The Lycinians held their ground, however, and only when night fell did they make an orderly retreat from the battlefield. So that's one decisive loss and one indecisive withdrawal for mm-hmm. Licinius, and that made him think, maybe we should go ahead and sue for peace. He sent envoys to Constantine's camp, and negotiations began. At the first mention of Valen's name, Constantine grew so angry that he called the man, quote, a contemptible slave. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Stating that there would be no peace without his immediate abdication. Oh. It's unclear if the treaty included this next piece as a requirement, but shortly after Valens returned to his civilian life, Licinius had him executed. What a sad way to go for someone who tried to save their emperor's reign. Yeah. Anyway, the treaty that followed gave Constantine a large chunk of Licinius's westernmost lands, mostly those lands that had originally been given to Licinius mm-hmm. by Galerius since Maxentius had held Italy. This moved the dividing line of the two halves of the empire east. Mm-hmm. On top of this, Constantine would now be the senior Augustus, putting to bed any further confusion about who is truly in charge. And finally, they resolved the issue that had started and then inflamed this conflict, the Caesars. It was decided that they would keep it simple, and both men would appoint their own sons as Caesar. Constantine, by this time, had two sons, Crispus, who was about 17, and little Constantine, who was around one. Oh. Both were appointed as Caesar, along with Licinius' son, who was also called Licinius, and who was around two, and obviously is a nephew of Constantine. And that's where we're going to leave it for today. Because we have a lot more to so talk about. More. <laughs> There's so much more to talk Part about. three, baby. <laughs> yes. So I do apologize that we're having to do a three-parter for Constantine if that upsets anyone. But we will get to the end of it next time for sure. But it was he's there's so much written on this man. It's just more history. Well, it, it's it was very messy. Yeah. It's been very messy the whole time. Very we're messy. only finally getting to like two major players. Yeah. <laughs> That's so. really it, is there's so many people. Yeah. That it's like uh, you know, this this podcast is inspired by Totalis Rankium mm-hmm. and they had an episode for every emperor mm-hmm. that we've mm-hmm. talked about. So I've had to kinda maneuver and make sure we understand everyone enough. But yeah, it's it's so interesting. But we're getting we're getting close. There won't be this many emperors for long. And I don't think we'll hit any other emperors that we need to go into this much detail on. I don't think so. But we'll see. But part three will definitely be the conclusion. And thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you are enjoying it. I've been having a wonderful time researching it. And we will see you next time. All right. Bye.